And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, and when he came to the place he saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is God's word. All right. Uh, Please pray with me, if you would. Father in heaven, I thank you for this story that you've given to your people for a really long time. I thank you for all of the Christians and people of God who have been moved by these words, go and do likewise. Um, I pray that we can meditate well over just the gravity of this story, but also the comfort that it should hopefully afford to us. And... uh, yeah, I just pray that uh, you would be able to increase as I, de- as I decrease through the message that I have prepared, that you and I have prepared together, and that uh, you would be able to use it to feed your people here, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's interesting that as much as we as humans tends to gravitate towards things like friendship and community and relationships and belonging, there's also a sense in which we kind of create enemies. And I, I mean, even, even using the word enemies in this day and age always feels like such a dated term. Like, very rarely in conversation with someone will somebody be like, oh, yeah, and then there's Dan, who's my enemy. Like, it seems so dated. It feels so, like, out of whack to be like, ah, oh, yes, uh, that over there is the Johnsons. We're good friends. And then over there is the Stevensons, and those are my enemies. Like, these types of, the, the way that we use that phrase doesn't really connect in the same way anymore. And a lot of it feels like we're almost not wanting to acknowledge that there is sort of like a rivalry that exists. Even when I think of rivalries off the top of my head, I think, okay, yeah, uh, Tucson and Phoenix. Like, I don't really love Phoenix. In fact, I've spoken ill about Phoenix on several occasions, and darn it, I will continue to do so. But I'm not going to physically provoke someone because they are from Phoenix, and I would be really surprised if they did the same to me. When we think of enemies and rivalries, we think of, you know, uh, Red Sox and Yankees fans or Celtics and Lakers fans. Like, there's like a sports element to it. What's that? And Suns fans? 
And Sunday, right, of course, of course. Thank you, Roland. Um, and so it's like when we think of this enemy concept, the stakes are so low. The risk is so low. When we say someone's our enemy, it's almost like a joking thing. That's why I think what's interesting about the story of the Good Samaritan was when it speaks of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans at this point in history, this was not nonchalant. This was not a bloodless rivalry. This was not two people who casually make jokes about each other. No, like they were known for believing the other was subhuman. And what's really conflicting about it is that the, the Jews had the majority, and the Samaritans were definitely a minority, but there's never really a clear, like, oppressor, oppressee in the dynamic of their relationship. It's pretty consistently an even back and forth of violence and dehumanization. And I think it's worth talking about. Because maybe the reason why we don't quickly characterize an enemy in our day and age is frankly because the stakes are so low. Like imagine what your relationship with an enemy would be if you were a African-American or white person born in the deep south in the 1940s. I think it'd be a little bit easier to say, oh no, we don't like those people. We don't associate. I mean, imagine being uh, in Israel and the, the conflict between them and, and Palestine and the West Bank. Like, I was over there. Like, I lived there for six months. This is a story for a different sermon, but I'll, I'll just say really briefly. I think as Christians, we have a really big tendency to whitewash uh, the, the, the Israel dynamic over there. After it's, I took a few years of kind of reflecting, I was like, no, dude, those people were racist, man. Like... I won't speak to the politics of it, but when you listen to the way that someone talks about another person, especially someone who historically they've seen as a threat to their existence, it's not wildcats and sun devils. There are stakes. There's weight. And that's what's happening in this story. So we'll start at the beginning of where Danielle read this is uh, the life and ministry of Jesus, a key figure in Christianity. And uh, this is a part of his ministry, and, and many of the religious leaders around the area are kind of in the rhythm of challenging him, debating him. A lot of the time, they're always trying to get him to say something that affirms and validates one of their biases or beliefs or etc. And what's amazing about Jesus is that He's always able to have that x-ray vision right to their heart and know exactly what to say and how to get right back at the point that they're trying to make. Jesus doesn't fall for these bamboozling attempts, and it, the same thing happens here. So this lawyer, uh, who we understand as a Jewish man who was well-trained and very knowledgeable in the law of the Jewish people or the Israelites, the people of the Old Testament— he approaches Jesus and he says, what should I do if I want to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, well, you're a lawyer. You know the book well. What does it say? 
And he says, well, uh, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have to love your neighbor. And Jesus says, A plus, exactly right. And it seems like Jesus is like, yeah, I'm done with this conversation. But the guy pushes, and he says, whoa, 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 but, but Jesus, who's my neighbor? Because we have to remember The nation of Israel at this point in time had been stepped on and oppressed and taken captive by about half a dozen different nations over hundreds and hundreds of years. So their definition for what a neighbor is has gotten narrower and narrower over time. A neighbor could have been anybody back in the day But now a neighbor doesn't include this group because they did this thing and this group who did this thing. So what he really wants Jesus to validate is he wants to say, Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus can be like, oh, your neighbor is uh, your friends, your family, and your pals at the synagogue. He wants to believe that my neighbors are just the people who are like-minded, similar to me, within my cultural grouping, the people who I'm comfortable with, the people who not only I don't have beef with, but my family and my ancestors never had beef with. I want my neighbors to be super comfortable. But Jesus, of course, he sees through that. So, he doesn't, so when he asks Jesus, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? He doesn't give him a straight answer. He gives him a story. And he says, I want you to imagine a man most likely a Jewish man, walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, which he would have been familiar with that. It would have been like saying, uh, imagine a guy's driving from Tucson down to Benson. A lot of us have made that road before. This road in particular, not the one to Benson, was very dangerous. The way the geography was set up, it was a frequent place where robbers would hide and ambush people. And that's exactly what happened. This man's traveling. He gets ambushed by robbers. They take him. They beat him halfway dead. They take all of his stuff, and they leave him there. The guy walks by. Now, this is, this is a familiar road, but not necessarily a well-traveled road. The fact that one person passed him by was a miracle. And oh my gosh, it's a priest, a religious leader of my community, Surely he will will take pity on me and save me. Walks right by. Second man, a Levite, part of the priestly nation, another high-tier person in the Jewish community. He's worse because he doesn't just observe the beaten man. He actually gets close to check him out, and then he leaves. And finally, a Samaritan, throwback to my last sermon, the worst person you could imagine, walks up, sees you beaten and bloody, and he takes care of him. And and the worst part to the people who are hearing this story is he does an amazing job. He takes him, uses wine and oil to kind of clean off his wounds. He, he puts this wounded man on his animal, whether it was a horse, donkey, camel, whatever. And he, he walks 
so the wounded man can ride and not have to burden himself more. They go to an inn where he stays at that inn to continue to nurse this man's wounds. Goes to the innkeeper and gives him enough money for this wounded guy to stay there for three weeks if he needed to. That's a, that's a significant amount of money. And he tells the innkeeper, if you spend over what I'm giving you, I'll come back and pay over the rest. I'm going to make sure that this guy's taken care of on my dime. And so Jesus concludes the story and says, well, I just showed you three people. Who do you think the neighbor was? And the way you know that this man didn't like the story that Jesus told him was because he said, the man who took mercy, but he didn't say the Samaritan because he didn't want to say it like that. He didn't want to say who he was. It was like offensive to him. And so now let's, uh, let's ask, because you guys know I, I love digging into history a bit. Where, where did this conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews come from? I'll, I'll try to get into, it, get into it more or less quickly. So, bam, all right. So, if you can see on the map here, weeks ago we went through a king by the name of David. David was one of the more successful kings. He was highly beloved. Still, to this day, um, David is considered one of the most elite kings and figures in the story of the Old Testament. Well, he has a son, Solomon. He's very wise, but he makes very poor political decisions. And the decisions that he make lead to this time period in the Old Testament that leads to a civil war between Israel. Literally the worst thing you could imagine that the people of God that he has saved out of slavery and delivered time and time again are literally wounding and killing each other. And so the nation splits. Just imagine that where it says Galilee is blue instead of yellow. That's a little bit wrong era for that map. But Judea and Samaria become these two split kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom maintains Jerusalem as the place of their temple. This is their religious center. This is where the priests go, where the sacrifices are performed. This is the most significant place for anyone who wants to worship the God of Israel. But since the nations are split now, the northern kingdom doesn't have a place to express their religious affections towards God. And so they make their own capital, and it's called Samaria, a city in the northern kingdom. Now, after the Civil War, while the southern kingdom kind of continues to be more or less uh, comfortable, more or less, uh, you know, affluent, the northern kingdom gets conquered by a nation called the Assyrians. I think I have that. The Assyrians come and they just thrash the northern kingdom. And ironically, this happening actually makes the southern kingdom of Judea think even worse of the northerners. They think, well, clearly they lost because they didn't have the secret sauce that we do down here. And also they started to think less of them because the Assyrians would start to marry the Jews in the northern kingdom. 
And when they got married, they would have mixed race children, which you guys all know I am personally a big fan of. And so the Jews who, kept, who considered their bloodline something they really strongly valued, they saw the northern kingdom as mixed race and losing their Israel purity and that they were now starting to fall into all of these weird customs from Assyrian religions that weren't, that weren't appropriately Jewish. Something terrible, of course, would happen in the southern kingdom. Oh, that's the wrong slide. Yes. Something terrible, of course, would happen in the southern kingdom, which was the Babylonians would come and conquer it. This was even worse than what the Assyrians did to the north because they would come in, they would destroy the temple that Solomon had built, which was a devastating experience for the Jews of that time. And they didn't just kill a good number of them, but they exiled them. They forced these people, the people of God, out of the land that they were promised, and they were forced into exile, which is a big, difficult era in, uh, in the Old Testament. Sometime later, the, Pers uh, the Persians take over uh, the Israeli territory and they say, you know what? I'm moved by the spirit of God. I feel compassion for you. I'm gonna let all of you come back to your chosen land. You can rebuild your temple. You can resume worshiping here. And so all of the Southern Jews who had been cast out, they return and who do they find waiting for them? The Samaritans, because they never left. They never had to. They were never thrown out of the land, which of course you could imagine made all of these Southern kingdom dudes feel very, very angry that they didn't have to carry the same weight and the same crushing burden of exile that these other Jews did. And so what happens, and what I think is probably one of the most pivotal incidents that forced this wedge, was that as they returned to build the temple, the Samaritans said, well, hey, we, we haven't had access to Jerusalem in hundreds of years. We would love to help rebuild this temple so that we can get back to worshiping God too. And the southern kingdom said, no, kick rocks. You guys aren't like us. Go back up north. Do your own thing. And so they did. And they went up and they built their own temple. This is the ruins. I think it looked a little bit better than that in its heyday, I would, I would assume. But they essentially said, well, hey, if we're going to be rejected from this place that years ago used to be ours, then we're just going to make our own place now. So they built their own temple and all of the weird deviations that they had taken from how to worship God and the rituals of how to serve God, they just kept and solidified. And these two groups just had this permanent wedge shoved between the two of them. And while there were efforts to try to reconcile and try to bring these two people groups that literally had the same blood of Abraham in each of them back together, there was one leader of the southern kingdom who said, here's the thing. The reason the Samaritans are doing all these things wrong is because they're unclean. And you talk about cancel culture. Being called unclean in this religious context, you couldn't step in the door 
You don't make eye contact with someone who's unclean. Someone who's unclean is down with the dogs. And so these two never really liked each other, to say the least. And so for this Jewish man, going back to our story, for this lawyer, for this law expert to look at Jesus and say, well, who is my neighbor? And for Jesus to say, imagine no one from your clan looked upon someone with mercy except for the person you hate the most. What does that say about who your neighbor is? Jesus was making a statement. And what I love is, and this almost makes the history lesson we just went through kind of bunk, but what I love about the statement that Jesus is making here is that it rings true for 2,000 years, is that Jesus wasn't saying, hear ye, hear ye, I now, I now decree that the Jews and the Samaritans will like each other now. Or that these two people with this rivalry trapped in history, because here's the thing, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm not a Samaritan. There's like 500 Samaritans left in the world right now. This ethnic conflict to me means absolutely nothing in my personal life. But what Jesus says is a truth that rings out across the world for 2,000 years and on to this day. And what he's saying is, your neighbor is neither a Jew nor a Samaritan. Your neighbor is neither a Christian or a Muslim. Your neighbor's not from Tucson or from Phoenix or from Benson or from Casa Grande. Your neighbor is any man, woman, or child who is in need. That's your neighbor. And that was not <laughs> what this guy wanted to hear. But this was the kingdom language coming from Jesus. This was this language that enforces this movement of healing, of the spirit of God moving across the earth that says, across rivalries and across blood feuds and across tensions that have existed for hundreds of years, the Spirit of God is saying, all who are in need should be healed and served and tended to by my people. And the problem is, if we, as Christians, are allowing prejudice or bigotry, or even personal self-preservation excuses to keep us from showing compassion to someone in need, then we don't find ourselves with the Good Samaritan. We find ourselves with the priest and with the Levite who had all the right beliefs and all of the confidence in the world, but walked away from someone in need completely morally bankrupt. So instead of falling into this trap that he was setting for him of who is my neighbor, Jesus revealed that anyone in need is a neighbor to the child of God. And he explains what we do to serve our neighbors. I don't know if I have time to get into all of these with great detail, but 
it would be a disservice to not at least quickly go through. I think there's three very distinct ways that we see the Good Samaritan serving. And I think that these three things are honestly things that we, I don't even think just as Americans or Westerners, I think as people, tends to be very, very protective of. The first is energy. Again, this guy didn't say, all right, uh, I'm on my donkey here, so I'm going to carry you on my shoulders as the donkey carries both of us. No, he, put, he took the beast of burden and he put the man on that and then he walked for however many miles to get to the inn. He expended his energy to serve this man, energy that he otherwise would have been able to preserve for himself. Second, time. We don't know where this dude was traveling to. We don't know how urgent the situation was. But for whatever reason, he found it fitting to take this wounded man to an inn and to stay there with him to serve him. He expended time. Time is tough. And then money. I already said he, he gave this guy two denarii. I don't know how to pronounce that correctly, but he gave him enough money literally for the innkeeper to keep this wounded guy taken care of for three weeks. He was not stingy about the cost. In fact, he wasn't stingy about any of the ways that he served this guy. Jesus is making it very clear that when it comes to serving, especially someone in dire, life-threatening need like this, it's not our call to be stingy. God oversees everything, right? God oversees our bank accounts, so he will make things work if we're using money to save someone who's about to die. God will give you the time. God will afford you the energy, but I think a lot of times we get protective of it. And I mean, honestly, like, I think it's worth considering. The reason I can recognize that these are things that people are protective of because they're things I'm protective of. I, I can get painfully defensive when I feel like one of these things is being, like, taken from me. But that also comes from a pretty lousy misunderstanding that if all of these things are gifts from God and God is compelling me to be generous and selfless with my gifts, then I don't know, where's the disconnect there? So we'll throw that out there just for a bit. So our, our question is, what does it look like to be a good Samaritan today? Or, or better, what does it look like to live out this call that Jesus is placing on his people to advance this kingdom of healing and restoration for those who are in need? I'll say this, dude. I trained in martial arts for the better part of 17 years. Not a single time did I ever get the snot beaten out of me like the dude in this story. I've never been beaten senseless to, uh, to half an inch of my life. I've, I've driven these streets for a long time. I don't think I've observed it myself either, not knowingly. Have I driven past someone who was beaten up and robbed and left bloody on the street? But I will say this. I've never been beaten half to death before. But I've felt lonely 
quite a bit. I felt painfully isolated from my community, from my friends, from just people around me, from, from God even. And I think like, you know, Barna Group loves to publish these studies and they, they share that within the age group that many of us fall into of, of 18 to 35, there's like a pandemic of loneliness happening right now. Something like less than 35% of adults from that age range would say that they believed a single person believed in them. My gosh, less than 35% of people from 18 to 35 believed that they had a single person in their lives who believed in them or deeply cared for them. That's 65% plus people feeling that way. And I've experienced that myself. And so maybe we don't, uh, search the streets for, for signs of robbers and, and violence. I mean, we, we shouldn't turn our backs to it. It's not like robbery and, and violent acts don't still happen. They definitely do. But if we're looking for those who are in need in our community, maybe we need to stop trying to be vigilantes and just look for the lonely in our community. Look for those who maybe don't have the wherewithal to express the need that they feel sitting on their chests and applying a brutal burden to them. In fact, I would say confidently that if you want to serve the people who are both in this community right here and beyond, that's a great, great place to start. And you know, I, I thought about this and I, I don't want to conclude this, this sermon by just rattling off a bunch of things that I don't think are being done. In fact, I've found myself over the past couple of months deeply encouraged by this community. And I want to tell you guys why. The Mexico trip is an easy dub to pick on, but I mean, come on. We had half a dozen, no, probably a little bit more, close to 10 people from our community who took all three of the things we were talking about, their money, their time, and their energy, committed themselves to a culture that was very, that was very different from theirs, literally across a language barrier to sit in the Sonoran desert sun and build stuff. Not, not just to say, hey, uh, here's this thing that you need. Let me be your provider. But just to express, like, this is a thing that we have, that we can do. You are a person in need of this. But also it reflects the love of God, the heart of God that says that we are a church doing this. That's, that's amazing. That's a beautiful thing. I think even the, I, I've been thinking like the, the singles events that Cassie and Ty have been putting together. I, I, even as an outsider, I can look at it and think this isn't just like 
people trying to go on dates. This is clearly an opportunity to create something communal for a people who are going through, you know, maybe a very vulnerable and lonely time in their lives and say, hey, what if we got together and, and shared life and had fun and, and maybe you could shoot your shot with somebody like that? What? That's amazing. How would that not be a blessing? That's a beautiful thing. I love that we can say that someone from our church does that. I love that we have communities, like, like tiny little circles in our church, like Mike, Mike's small group, that makes very open dialogue for, for things like doubt and uncertainty in their faith. To be able to explore the hurts that have been experienced and talk candidly, but also not afraid to share the good news in that same like, place. That's amazing. I love that. I love that I stood up here a couple months ago and said, hey guys, my, uh, my sister does Special Olympics and a bunch of leaders just retired or died unexpectedly. And Jared and Dante showed up for it. I love that. Do you know who most of the people are who volunteer for Special Olympics? They're the athletes' parents. They're like 70 and 80-year-old people holding, holding stopwatches as their, as their disabled adult children are running 40-meter dashes. It's amazing, but it's also sad. But I love that we had people go out there for that. There's more. That's not an exhaustive list by any means. But I do just want to acknowledge I don't think this is a dead place. And I, I hope you don't either. I think that the Spirit of God is blessing a lot of us in really, really impactful ways. And I don't want that to be a call to, and we're done. We have hit the goal. We have arrived at Mecca. We are perfect now. That is, that is not the case. There is still Many stones left unturned. But I can say this, I love that we're a community where we're taking care of each other so that we can take care of those outside. That we can, we can feed the needs of the believers in this community so that we can look to those outside and serve them as well. Annie Udarian, taking the baton of, of Care Portal, just like a champ, just bearing it pretty much solo right now. Just drives me crazy. I love it. It's so great. Bringing, bringing bags to be filled with diapers, and then every bag got filled. What are, that's amazing. Like, there's so many good things happening. Ed and Grace are just going to be the, the leaders of serving their community probably for the next three or four decades, and we're just hoping that we can learn a little bit from what you guys are doing, but we're just happy to see you every Sunday. We're just happy to see what you guys have to offer because you offer so much. Like, again, the list is not exhaustive and I probably need to stop. But still, I, I am. I'm, I'm deeply honored, deeply blessed to be a part of this community, especially as a pastor. Because we're recognizing need. Because we're recognizing ache and hurt. And I want to say to those who are, who are doing it, who are waist deep in it, please continue. It's beautiful what you're doing. And to those who aren't, you, you've got opportunities. There is no shortage 
of need in our community, whether it's this one or 50 yards that way in a circle around us. There's not. And I also need to say this, like, being able to serve, being able to do things is wonderful. But sometimes we notice that our heart is starting to shrink back even though the actions are still very much there. It's when your kindness is starting to turn into just niceness, where it goes from something that's a genuine overflow of love to just you trying to meet an expectation or a demand. If your kindness is starting to run empty, I would deeply encourage you guys, look to the one who is literally overflowing with kindness and love. It can be hard to, to act like we have all of this love and compassion ourselves when we disconnect ourselves from the source and we're not supposed to do that. Jesus calls himself the vine. We're supposed to be connected. And so that's my encouragement. These words that Jesus said when he said, go and do likewise, I, I wanna think of like the history of this phrase. I want to think of the Christians who heard this phrase and literally saw a man bleeding and dying and remembered what Jesus said and then served them. I want to think of the people that built hospitals, the people that, that stayed behind in plague-ridden areas, all because Jesus said, go and do likewise. I want to think of the missionaries who went off into dangerous, un unknown territories with nothing but a heart full of the gospel and said, I'm just doing this because Jesus said to go and do likewise. It's, it's, it's a beautiful phrase. And the people of God have been filled with the lightning of that phrase for 2,000 years. So, Go and do likewise. Pray with me. Father God, I, uh, I just want to say first off, God, I'm, I'm so beyond grateful for the community that we have. I'm grateful for the community that is continuing to be built. Um, I'm thankful for friendships that have formed. I'm thankful for vulnerability. I'm thankful for friends who can gather and support each other and hold each other accountable and, and all these types of things, God. There's so many wonderful things happening in our community, but I also don't want to act like we've just hit the top of the mountain. There are still those in our community who are part of that large percentage of young adults who feel entirely unseen unloved, unbelieved in. And we know that you, God, you love, you see, you believe. You, uh, you deeply care for each of your children in ways that we can't even fathom. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, just start some conversations, send some text messages on behalf of people to those who don't feel it. Just... Uh, Help us to love our church better and in turn, love the rest of the world too. Um, just keep us steadfast in this mission, not by the uh, ambition or hardworking nature of our 
of our whatever, but just because your spirit reminds me, reminds us of how much we are loved and how kind and how gracious you are to us. Let, let that be our gas tank always and forever. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.